Welcome to the sanctuary. You're listening to DC Radio 96.3 HD4 and dcradio.gov, where we inspire, educate, and empower women of color to unapologetically transform into their most authentic and healthy selves by tapping into the goddess within. Welcome to the sanctuary. You're listening to DC Radio 96.3 HD4 and DCRadio.gov. I'm Wendy Cherry, the host of the Sanctuary Radio Show. And today's show is really special. We will be talking about the fact. Now dig this. This is a fact. Black women are 243% more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. That's crazy. Yes, That's crazy. <laughs> so I have a guest in the studio today. Her name is Manira Fontaine, and she is the owner of A Peaceful Earth, Graceful Birth. And it is a company that works with wombs across the continuum. So we're going to delve into that, because that sounds <laughs> amazing. She wears many hats as a birth and postpartum doula, and we're going to ask what a doula is. Okay. A childbirth educator, a peer lactation consultant, and a certified womb sauna practitioner and early interventionist of children with special needs aged birth to four. So that's... You wear a lot of hats, ma'am. I do. Yeah. I do. Okay. <laughs> and she believes that womb should be supported to birth gracefully and that means with the freedom to determine what form their birth will take up will take instead of having it dictated to them so the first question i have for you is where were you in 2002 <laughs> what the heck where i hadn't gone she? on my journey yet <laughs> oh my gosh 2002 2001 so why this topic was important to me was a few different things because I've been hearing it in the news. So we've been hearing about, you know, being more in tune to black women and their um, issues with uh, the lack of care in the in the healthcare community in the West. Right. Um, we're looked at in a different way. Some of our symptoms are not believed. And so Serena Williams was having a, I guess, a pulmonary embolism. She was having something. Um, and she had to fight for her life because she knew her body and she knew mm -hmm. that she'd experienced this situation before. before. Mm -hmm. Right. And so she knew that she needed to get some help and she knew there was something that could be done that could help her. And told them specifically. <laughs> told them specifically. I know what this is. This has happened to me before. This is what helps it. And they still did not believe her. And they did not believe her. So now they were probably psyched to have her in their hospital. They probably wanted to get autographs and all those things. But when she started to tell them what she needed and what she was experiencing, they had a little pushback. So rewind to 2001 and I am pregnant with the Sid Sid, okay, who is now 16. Mm -hmm. And... I woke up one morning and I am um, 
in another city. I'm in another city. It's Easter and I'm there for a funeral. And I wake up and I go on this nausea roller coaster. Mm. It was something that I'd never experienced before. Now, I've experienced nausea before, but not to this depth. And so now I'm feeling guilty because I'm in, you know, I'm at my in-laws. We're going to a funeral of a family member and I can't get off the floor. Mm. And so I did the best I could. It was hot. Everybody was grieving. And I was in a state of in my body that I'd never experienced before. Now, I didn't know I was pregnant at this time. Mm. Fast forward, I realize I'm seven uh, weeks pregnant and I have what they called hyperemesis gravidarum. I ain't never heard of such (laughs) in my life. Right. So it's so interesting. I mean, I lived it and I survived it and I'm saying I survived it. Yeah, so let me tell rough. you what the um, the definition of hyperemesis gravidarum is. It is a pregnancy complication that is characterized by severe nausea, vomiting, weight loss, and possible di- dehydration. No, I was dehydrated straight up. Signs and symptoms may also include vomiting many times a day and feeling faint. I am textbook. I'm textbook. Um, Hyperemesis gravidarum is considered more severe than morning sickness. Often symptoms get better after the 20th week of pregnancy, but may last the entire pregnancy duration, which is what happened to me. Now, let me just say this. This was 2001. I just got this. I just did this research this morning and it says the exact causes of hyperemesis gravidarum are unknown. So now you mean to tell me 16 years later, we still don't know what the causes are, right? So picture me, a pregnant woman who was um, experiencing this and trying to tell my my husband that that them crackers and that ginger ale ain't cutting it. Trying to explain to my new job that I was only there Mm. for two weeks, that I have to leave my first event that they gave me because I cannot stand here any longer. And then imagine me throwing up every single day and then going to the doctor and trying to explain what I'm experiencing and nobody really saying anything other than, well, ginger ale Mm -hmm. and some crackers. So I started, I, I was angry, I was confused, I was stressed out, I, I'm stressed out at home, now I'm stressed out at work, and then I have this baby. Mm-hmm. And so it came out eventually that I had hyperemesis gravidarum, and there was nothing I could do about it, so to suck it up. That's what I was mm-hmm. told, I'm just going to have to suck it up. And so I'm seven weeks into my pregnancy, And so now emotionally and mentally, I'm saying I am going to have to go 10 months or nine more months Mm -hmm. knowing that as soon as I open my eyes in the morning, I get on like the Anaconda roller coaster Mm -hmm. and there's nothing that helps it. So I threw up all the time. And so I threw up so much that my veins were um, gone. There were no mm. more veins. There was no blood in the veins. You and so dehydrated. I, I was oh. dehydrated. So we went to the hospital every other day. 
and then they put me on what was called a pick line. Mm-hmm. So I had a pick line. It was just um, uh, fluids, um, you know, the bags of fluids, and I was on it for 12 hours out of the day. So from 7 p.m. when mm. I came home from work because I needed my check, mm-hmm. so I went to work, I had my little spit cup, <laughs> I had my spit cup, and I'd have it at my desk. My my coworkers knew to move out the way if they saw me running to the bathroom because they knew I was going to throw up and I just couldn't eat. So I would drink boost mm. to try to keep something on my belly and try to give me some nutrients. Um, and so the pick line came. So from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., I was on this pick line and in the middle of the night, every six hours, I would have to switch it. So I'm up in the middle of the night, like half sleep, pregnant with this pick line, trying to reattach it to my port that they put in my arm and being like totally traumatized Mm -hmm. by the entire experience. So I had to be on this pick line. Oh, sorry. For a month. Oh, no. I I was just on it for a month. And I mean, I don't know why they stopped it, but they just said I I still had the symptoms. I was still throwing up. So I learned to cope. And this is what this is what I did. So my sister-in-law, Bridget, shout out to Bridget. She said, Wendy, you have to deal with it because we didn't know what else to do. So she said, throw up and go back and do what you have to do, because that's really was my mm-hmm. option. I didn't have no Maneras. You know, I didn't even know <laughs> nothing about y'all. So that's what I did. I would try to eat a little something and then I would throw it up because that was what was going to happen anyway. And then I saved. Mm-hmm. So I halved all my food. I ate one half, threw it up. And then sometimes the second part would um, stay, stay down. down. Um, I couldn't stand smells. Smells were I, I just it, it was so traumatizing. I couldn't do mint. I couldn't do peppermint. I couldn't eat like solid food so the boost and me and flintstones vitamins that oh, was my diet yeah because i couldn't <laughs> take those i couldn't take those um maternity pills because they already make you sick so i couldn't do those so now i got people side-eyeing me saying what's really going on with her so then somebody mm-hmm. said it's a psychological thing so i'm thinking and and i know that there is a um Less than 2% of women in Canada and the United States experienced it back then. I don't know what the numbers are now. Mm-hmm. But there was a, uh, a, I don't know if it was Virginia Woolf, or there was a woman who was a writer back in the 1700s who first documented it. And so what ha- has happened in the past is that women have what they call therapeutic abortions. They just mm. let abort the baby because they can't take it because mm-hmm. it'll keep mostly many times it'll stay with you. And it's so debilitating that you really can't survive, you know, and then other people just have one baby because if you have it once, many times they say like you'll they continue have to have yeah. it. So that was my life. And so now I, I was thinking this morning, I need to shout myself out because I survived it <laughs> with no support and with the side eyes. I just knew that. I had to live, right? So the day that I felt better, straight up, the day I felt better was the day she was born. They pulled her out. You know, I had a vaginal birth. And when she was coming out, I felt like blue diamonds and purple clovers and and just Mm. like Tinkerbell came and just did her wand. (laughs) I felt better instantly. Wow. 
because they told me that she was acting as a parasite. She was okay. I was the only one. So I lost 30 pounds. Mm -hmm. So what I weigh right now is what I weighed at the nine months of my pregnancy Mm -hmm. because I lost so much weight. I was emaciated. I laid in the bed, you know, when I came home from work all day, the roughest time was going to work on the beltway from Silver Spring to Virginia and back home. Mm. With my spit cup there and my spit up bag, that's when you learn how to like have no holes in your giant bag <laughs> because we had some crazy times, right? So I experienced this disrespect in the system too. And I mm. only came to that this morning when I started to think about it. Mm. So... Let's talk about how you got into, how you created your movement and why you think it was important for you to do that. Hmm. Um, well, I first want to piggyback really quickly okay. on what you um, were saying about the disrespect um, in the system, in the medical system for black women um, and to acknowledge that that is something that is historical in this country Mm -hmm. um, and that the field of obstetrics and gynecology was actually founded on the bodies of enslaved black women. Okay. So many of the surgical techniques that are now used Mm -hmm. um, to repair certain things like anal fissures and other things um, were experimented on without Anesthesia without anesthesia on right. enslaved black women. Right. Um, by J. Marion Sims, who was considered the father father of gynecology. Yes. Right. So they just took his little. Um, yeah, he had a whole his little, little experimental monument down hospital. in New York. Yes. Yes. Over the yeah, summer. Yeah, their sisters up in New York were yeah. mad. They stood in front of his <laughs> monument with white. Yes. Coats on with blood, blood in the front. Yes. So, yes. okay. Yes, ma'am. that man has much blood yes, on, his, on hands. his hands. Right. Um, I, I mean, and these are experiments that he documented, you know, because they didn't consider us uh, even humans back then anyway. Right. So right. Um, he actually had a little experimental hospital set up that was uh, staffed by enslaved women um, and where he experimented mm. on enslaved women because, so, you know, you're hearing now, um, you know, they're doing research where they're saying, okay, medical professionals don't think that black people experience pain right. at the same level as others, okay? And that was the same thought back then. Oh, right. black people, first of all, because we're not even human, right. are only three-fifths of a human. Right. Um, you know, that we did not feel and experience pain the same. So it was okay yep. to do these types of experiments um, because we could handle it. Right, right. right. Um, particularly the the black woman was looked at as, you know, hardier, not, not necessarily feminine, mm-hmm. you know, like the delicate white woman mm-hmm, uh, was mm-hmm. considered back mm-hmm. in the day. So, um, and, and that is a mindset that has continued in um, medical institutions right. to this day. Right. So part of what brought me to this work um, was kind of similar to my own experience. Okay. Um, so my oldest, who is now 20, oh, oh my God. Yes, they grow so uh, fast. Yes. <laughs> um, so with his birth, I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I was 20 okay. when I had my son. Um, and I really did not know much of anything about birth. I just thought, you know, hey, you know, you go to your doctor, they tell you what to do, and right. then it comes out. Right, <laughs> right. Um, and so I really didn't have, and I really was not informed on how to have agency over my own body. Absolutely. Um, and so fast forward, he had gone a little bit past his due date. And then they started telling me he was going to be really huge and I wasn't going to be able to birth him vaginally. Oh. And I was just going to have to have a C-section. A C-section. Because if I tried to have him vaginally, um, he, all these horrible things could happen to him. His, they might have to break his collarbone. Um, he might be permanently disabled for life. So they're just throwing all these really heavy things at uh, me and uh, my ex-husband. And uh, so out of fear, right, we made a fear-based choice. Um, I was like, okay, well, let's just have the C-section then because I could never, well, and my ex-husband was like, can you live with, you know, if something happens to the baby that we're the ones that made the choice? And I'm like, no. Right. Um, So anyway, fast forward, my son is, they said he was going to be between 10 and 13 pounds, which is Huge. Pretty big. Um, but he was a little over eight pounds. <laughs> um, and my postpartum time was horrible. Um, and so when I got pregnant again with my daughter, I knew that I really wanted something different. And right. so I really started trying to educate myself. And again, I went to doctors um, to see if I could be supported in a VBAC, which is a vaginal birth, birth after, after cesarean. Yeah, yes. okay. Um, and so all the doctors were like, look at my charts. And they would say, okay, yeah, you shouldn't have had this initial C-section, but we're sorry. We can't help you. Once you have a C-section, you have to just continue to have C-sections. Oh my gosh. Um, and I was like, but that's... And it's been, and it was eight years. So I was like, if mm. my uterus hasn't healed by now, it's never going to heal. Like right. this makes no like logical sense to me. Right. So I started researching, and I was like, because everyone was saying it's too big of a risk that your uterus could rupture, which means like kind of tear yeah. back open from yeah. where they had the surgical incision. So I started doing my own research, and I'm like, it's like a one to two percent chance. There's a one to two percent chance I could just die and child. Like you know, to me that risk was wasn't so major. Right. Um, so at the time I was actually living in Texas and so I ended up birthing with a midwife in a birth center. Mm. And I had now how did a, you find that? Like how did you know that that existed and to trust it? So <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. It was actually um, an aunt of mine. Okay. So I have an aunt who is always marched to the beat of her own drum. Okay. Yeah. Um, and That's so she <laughs> she had um so kind of back in the 90s, she had had home births wow. um, because her first uh, daughter had been a C-section and she said, I don't want to do that again. Right. Um, and so there were no legal options for her. So she ended up um, birthing at home with um, a midwife who wasn't licensed. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had wonderful, amazing birth experiences. So she was the one that said uh, to me, well, have you looked into, because I was just looking into OBs. She okay. was like, have you looked into a midwife? And I was like, why haven't I thought about a midwife? Right. Um, because I'm the oldest of four. Okay. And my mom actually had um, a home birth with my youngest daughter. Uh, my youngest, her youngest daughter. Okay. My youngest sister. Um, and this was in the 90s when it was rare. Um, like, it was all very hush-hush. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Um, but because 
it was almost like I had to re-remember that. Yeah. Because my mom will tell you to this day, like, that was my best birth experience. But wow. because it wasn't, um, you know, part of the culture in the milieu, I just hadn't even thought about going to a midwife. Right. So those were kind of the two things that made me start to look into midwifery. And midwifery is more freely practiced in Texas, so it really depends on um, your state kind of governs the extent of the types of birth they can attend and okay. that sort of thing. Um and so I ended up finding this lovely Mennonite um, <laughs> midwife who had done lots of vaginal births. And uh, she was like, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. I mean, wow. she, she was just so sort of nonchalant. nonchalant. And I was like, but I'm very high risk. I mm-hmm. need you to know I've had the cesarean. And mm-hmm. are we close to a hospital in case something happens? And mm-hmm. she's like you'll be fine. Right. <laughs> like she I that's what I do. Yeah, she's like <laughs> I've been doing this forever. Her mom she was the oldest of 10. Mm. Um so the her mother had ended up having uh C-sections with kind of the three three or four of the middle children um and then having vaginal births at home with her remaining children. Wow. Um and my midwife was present as her daughter. So she just wow. had a very deep fundamental trust. Yeah. Um in uh, birthing bodies, and she was like, "You got this," and that was really, that was really all I needed. That's what you needed, like <laughs> that, that really piece that you would survive it instead yes. of being scared to death about. Right, because right. you know, here's the thing: she made me feel that my, there was nothing wrong with my body, that my right. body would know what to do, that I would know what to do for right. my baby. Right. Um, so. It was very much um, an empowering experience for me. And then from that, I was like, I want other women to have this. I want other women to be empowered in this way around their birth. Right. So that's interesting that uh, the the concept that you are okay, the -hmm. concept that your body would know what to do and whatever. So I felt more pitiful. I felt more pitied. Mm. Um, And then I was just like emotionally distraught with the whole process, physically exhausted, Mm -hmm. emotionally, spiritually distraught because this was happening. And this ain't how I see it on TV. Right. You know, you're so, and that this was before (laughs) the whole social media. This is back in the day where I ain't have them pictures with the belly. And you know, Uh I didn't have all that. So what I remember the most was that I had to switch doctors three times. Mm. And so the second place I had to go to like a a large, well-known medical facility right here in Silver Spring. And um, there were some black ladies there, like the black ladies Mm. who work at the desk and whatever. Mm -hmm. Check us in. And I remember them. What I felt like is that they felt so badly for me because I would always come in just emaciated Mm -hmm. i would always come in just like on my last throwing up all over their their um you know there where you sit in your sitting area Mm -hmm. and then i i know that they took care of me as much Mm -hmm. as they could for like the 30 40 minutes that i was seeing my doctor Mm -hmm. and at my appointment and feeling miserable so what i do know is that they never charged me Mm -hmm. they never like ran the card or they never did anything and they always would like give me water which water made me throw up more but they were trying right, you know what I'm saying right. so I think that it's you know really important to feel like you're empowered through this process 
and know, I think through the birthing process, but I also feel through navigating the medical system yes. because there's more, there's, I, I took some stats. And so, you know, black expectant and new mothers in the U.S. die at about the same rate mm. as women in Mexico and Uzbekistan. Mm. That's according to the World Health Organization. In New York City, black mothers are 12 times more likely to die than white mothers, according to the data. And their risk of death was seven times higher. So there was a quote from this woman named Reagan McDonald Mosley, and she is the chief medical director for Planned Parenthood Federation of America. And she says it tells you that you can't educate your way out of this problem. Nope. You can't health care access your way out of this problem. And that there is something inherently wrong with the system that's not valuing the lives of black women equally to white women. Mm-hmm. So she said a mouthful. She did. Um, one of the things that I think is also important to capture about that statistic is so that's um, that includes so the majority of women in that. 243 <laughs> um, percent are actually women that have died outside of the event, the actual event of childbirth. So they had the child and then a few weeks later they passed. Right. Or they passed before they even were able to birth their child. Mm. Okay. So, um, again, because they're not receiving that support. Right. And traditionally, that's that support has always been a community-based support. Okay. Um, versus now, we're looking for support from a medical industry. And, you know, our mo- medical model is based on money, right? right? So it's not based on healthcare as a human right. Right. It's based on a business model. Yeah. It's based on... Um, a business model. Right. So Money. all of that. Right. 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 So that that drives outcomes. That drives where they put their focus and yep. their energy. Yep. Um, versus really, you know, nurture, nurturing and nourishing um, what's going to be our future. Right. Right. Like children are our future. This country is a hot mess. <laughs> right. So tell me, so you said something about your mom, I think it was, that had a baby, had her home birth, and the lady wasn't licensed. So now Mm -hmm. let's talk about who was really licensed back in the day to have babies. It was the midwife or the birth, you know, the the elders Mm -hmm. who came in and helped the young woman. Talk to us more about what the culture was, especially in our community. What was that culture like back in the day? Okay, so particularly um, in the South, um, the grand midwives, or sometimes you will hear them referred to as the granny midwives, Mm -hmm. um, really tended to um, the birth and care of pregnant women, uh, both black and white pregnant women. Um, There is some discussion around the term because 
While the term granny was used within the black community as a term of endearment, mm-hmm. as a term of respect, right. um, when they began to be talked about in the literature as the medical system came to take over, um, they used the term granny midwife in a very derogatory, derogatory term. Right. right. So it was, you know, these old, illiterate, dirty women are coming in here and they don't know how, you know, they're not doing things properly and they're causing babies to die. Mm. Um, because there was a, a, a really big push um, to eradicate midwifery. I mean, they have documentation yeah. where they were like, this. they called it the midwife problem, um, wow. where they were like, this is how we're going to eradicate midwifery. Um, and we're going, because originally women didn't want to go Right. to doctors and to hospitals, no. especially black women. They no. were treated like crap. Right. So, you know, that is completely different than, no, no, no. Granny down the street then birthed my mama and all of my aunties. Like, right. she's the know me. We went to church together. Right. You know, it was a whole completely different relationship right. um, with, with these midwives than it was when they started to push them out and push... Um, birthing women into the hospital. Right. I think my mom was born in a house. Her brother was definitely born in a house. And my uncle, my uncle and my my mom's brother were born. Well, they're both my uncles, but my cousin and my and my mom's brother were born in the house on the same day. Mm. You know, it's just like that's what the community did. There was no access to the hospital. Mm-hmm. They weren't letting black people come to the hospital back where they were from in Virginia. And so You know, it's one of those things where it was a part of the culture. So here we go again, you know, um, taking it away, taking it away and westernizing it. Disempowering the women, right? Right. Because it was in the household. So all the other women got to see birth as a natural event, right? Right. Um, Then you pull birth out of the household, you put it in the hospital, and then no one's allowed to go in the room. Right. And then there was the whole era, um, and primarily the 40s and 50s, of twilight sleep, where they would just knock women out. Oh. So so I'll tell you, when I asked my grandmother, um, so my mother was born in 48, oh, she'd probably be mad, I told it, sorry. That's okay. Uh, (laughs) But uh, my grandma, so I asked my grandmother to tell me her birth story. Okay. So she was like, well, you know, I had these contractions, da, 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 da. So long story short, she goes to the hospital, and she was like, I told them, don't uh, don't drug me. Mm -hmm. And she was like, and that's the last thing I remember. I woke up and then your mother was here. So you have a whole generation of women completely separated from From their their birth experience. Right. And so they have nothing to pass down to their daughter. Mm -hmm. And then also during that time, breastfeeding was highly discouraged by doctors and Mm -hmm. they were really pushing formula. Formula. Nestle is evil. Mm -hmm, Um, But mm -hmm. they were really pushing formula um, as a cleaner, safer alternative to breast milk. So you didn't even have that connection to your child. Um, And things have kind of been going downhill. Things have been going downhill. But no, no, no. There really is. There are a lot of... um, women um, and people who are really working hard to kind of change change birth. this right yes. so even my sister my oldest sister is a is a doula 
And she has been, she's in New Jersey, shout out to my sister Cher. She has been for maybe 10 plus years. Mm. And so she's had lots of different experiences and she loves to do it. And now my niece, her daughter, is starting to make her way into her role, into that same thing. So people are doing it. And that's really what I wanted to have Manira on for, is to give us hope. Because we have these terrible statistics Mm -hmm. and there comes a point when you just got to wake up. You got to wake up and realize that that what's happening is not created for us. Mm-hmm. And so we have to take our own health into our hands. And it starts even from when you're birthing. Um, and that will even, you know, positively have a ripple effect on the child and how the child moves through the earth and how yes. it moves to the world. Because, you know, I study and am certified as a um like a health coach in nutrition, right? But what we always go back to is how you show up in the world and how you move through the world is directly related to how you were in your mother's womb. Mm. So if you were, and it's like epigenetics, things turn on, things turn off, um, based on the level of stress she was under, based on how happy she was, what her diet was. So these are some more of the facts. Um, They're saying that Black women are affected by this um, phenomenon because they have differing access to healthy food, safe drinking water, safe neighborhoods, good schools, decent jobs, and reliable transportation. That's the basics of life. Mm -hmm. And we um, have found ourselves to not have uh, the access that other people have. And this also goes it surpasses um, socioeconomic, uh, like your standing. Yes. You know, so I've, I'm reading articles about a woman in Atlanta who had a dual PhD in black women's studies and health and studying the disparities of it. She worked at the CDC mm-hmm. and she died because of high blood pressure. She died. And so... Why wouldn't and she had a support system? She had her family, she had her parents, she had her tribe, she had her grad school, med school, you know, whoever, whatever school people all down with her, and she still died. And so, when I was gonna say, so when they actually um, looked at the statistics, so an uneducated teenage white, white mother, mama. yes, mm-hmm. has better birthing outcomes than a wealthy, highly educated black woman. Yeah. Um, And I think, again, that really goes down to um, the racism that is just, I mean, it's what the medical system was built upon. It's it's built upon it. So it is just steeped inside of it. Um, And I think some of us, and not to say there are some there are some great hospitals in this area and some people doing some really good work right. um, inside of hospitals to try to change the system. But that's not the only option you have. We right. have some amazing birthing centers in this area. Okay. DC's Birth Center, shout out to the Wakanda Midwives <laughs> at DC Birth Center, uh, at the DC Family Health and Birth Center. Okay. Um, but there are a lot of women who are doing their home birth midwives mm-hmm. um, now. 
in um, primarily in Maryland and Virginia, um, but who are really working hard to kind of bring back this traditional um, midwifery model of care, right? Um, which because a lot of it, it isn't just the medical piece. It's a lot of the softer stuff that you can't capture when you're in a business relationship right. with someone. Right. And we're in a business relationship with um, a lot of our healthcare providers. Right. So let me just read this. It, um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation said that 33% of black women said that they personally had been discriminated against because of their race when going to a doctor or health clinic and 21% they have avoided going Mm -hmm. because of the racial discrimination against them. And that causes stress. So we got stress every day. Um, And this woman named uh, Miss Jackson said that it's chronic stress that just happens all the time. There is never a period where there's rest from it. It's everywhere, it's in the air, it affects Mm -hmm. us. And it's the experience of having to work harder than anybody else just to get equal pay and equal respect. And that's sort of like what this woman who has this double PhD, she was stressed out. Mm -hmm. She was trying to um, fit in and trying to do all the things that you do when you're trying to, when you know you have to work harder. Like Mm -hmm. Olivia Pope's daddy Mm -hmm. said, you gotta work harder, pretty much. And so that's sort of some of the stress that affects us when we start to begin the birthing process. Um, we're all, our bodies are stressed out. So tell us some tips of how people can find you all. And what is your intake process? Like, are, are there people, is everybody good for a doula? Or are some people you say, maybe you should go to the hospital? Like, how is it when they first come to you and what do you tell them and what experience do they get? Okay, so um, as a doula, our role in the birthing process um, is we offer sort of informational, um, direct sort of physical support during the labor process, um, social emotional support. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is sort of more of a birth doula's role. Okay. There are um, also postpartum doulas who come in afterwards. Okay. Um, and they will do like help hold your baby so you can get a little extra sleep. Mm-hmm. Doing, uh, helping to fix meals. Some do kind of light housekeeping around the house, helping you to set up um systems of care in your home so that you are really deeply nourished right. um, in what we call the fourth trimester. The fourth trimester. So that's after you have the baby. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I was stressed out. I had tears. They told me to do some sit mm-hmm. baths. I, the milk was coming in. I had no idea. When my mom was ready to leave, she she came for a week. And I remember mm-hmm. the baby was sitting on the the the, uh, the table in her little bouncy thing and she's just kind of looking all squishy and weird right <laughs> and my mom was about to walk out that door it took everything that I had in me not it to fall her. at her feet mm-hmm. and not be drug her be drug out the door with her yes. but I knew that if I did that I would stress her out and I knew that she had things to do mm-hmm. and that I didn't even want to put it on anybody else so I didn't. But when she left and when she got in the car and then she rode off and I watched her out the window, I looked at the baby. I'm like, what is going to do? Mm. <laughs> I had no idea. So I see how valuable that is, because if we're talking stress, we're talking everyday stress. And then you have this extra bit of stress and you are also supposed to be so happy. 
So, you know, it's like the right. mass. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're supposed to be so happy and you have these babies and you're supposed to be grateful because some people can't have babies. So you have yours. And then now you can't very well say, I don't feel well. I need some help. Mm-hmm. Something's not right. Well, and I think that this is why support during the postpartum time is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people are just kind of coming around to how important the postpartum mm-hmm. piece is mm-hmm. um, because that's really the time. So putting on my early childhood educators hat, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Um, babies don't even cognitively realize they are a separate entity from their mother. Oh, okay. And okay, so until they start to have more of a sense of themselves, more around three months. Okay. So, yes, that's why your baby does not want to be separated from you, because right. you, so you've been their complete universe right. for 10 months. Wow. And they are in a completely new world. Right. And you have to now navigate this world while, being, while having to be everything for this little person. Right. And that just doesn't jive. So you really need people to help set up systems of support so that you are available to be able um, to to attend to your baby um, and to help your baby be be the best little human they can be. Right, um, right. Like social emotional uh, skills start to develop at birth through mm. engagement with the primary care provider, which is usually right now the mother, but not okay, always. Right. Um, and so we're talking about growing healthy, whole, sane human beings. Right. <laughs> and that is something that, that, um, is very important for the future and why this should matter to not ju- this just shouldn't be a, a woman's issue right. right this is every everyone gets birthed so Everybody this gets is birthed. Right. something that everyone should be concerned about okay so you know let's talk about i, I do want to talk about more of um what what the positives are of a, mm-hmm. of a doula but i also want to talk about these people who lost their lives, mm-hmm. right? So let's talk about, mm, you're talking about the community. The community becomes impacted when this happens. So an example, I was reading that article that I just shared, the lady who's in Atlanta who has a dual PhD. Her mom, who was in her 70s, is now the primary caretaker for a mm. one-year-old. And she is now... Um, there's a picture of her in the article. This is on NPR, and I'll put the link to the, the the article in the show notes. But she has a trunk of all her mom's mementos and mm-hmm. everything because the lady just died in 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. And so she has a, a trunk full of all her mementos and things from school and pictures and everything, and even showing her on the couch with her little belly, with her dog, just in pure joy mm-hmm. that she's having this baby because she did it in vitro. So, yeah, she this is this baby was birthed in Mm -hmm. vitro. So but my own personal story is that my mom. So I even brought a picture of my grandmother. So this Mm -hmm. is my grandmother. Her name is Virginia Louise Bailey. And she died at the age of 22 Mm. in in uh, something related. Someone gone right during her her birthing experience. Mm -hmm. And so. She died um, on January 2nd. So what the story is, is that she was having these complications 
over the holidays. Think about the holiday, you know, of Christmas and whatever. And this um, doctor did not have it in him to leave his family to go tend to her over these holidays. Mm -hmm. And so she passed. So now she was the baby of eight children. Mm. She was 22. It was during the war. And so what happens to a black family when they lose their baby? Now, mind you, she was on her third baby. She was a married woman. We're supposed to be celebrating here. Mm -hmm. This is supposed to be celebration and it turns to tragedy. So nobody ever really spoke anything else about her. Mm-hmm. So my mom, and so I actually asked for permission to, to share, and I'm probably going deeper than, than I thought I would, but I, I watched my mom grow up and, and you know have us. Now, we had a great old time, but I could see underlying that there was something, right, that mm-hmm. was missing. My, my grandmother's brother helped to take care of her, and... Um, but that was after some trauma, other traumatic things had happened, right? And so we never knew what she looked like. We still don't know what her personality was. My mom is in her mid, mid-70s now. We never got to know what her laugh was like, mm-hmm. if she had a good sense of humor, mm-hmm. if she burnt the, the green beans. Like, we don't know anything about her. Mm-hmm. And so when I was out of college, I asked her brother, so now her brother was my Uncle George, and they look just alike. Like when we, mm-hmm. so I said to him, I said, I sat him and my aunt down and I said, listen, in 93, I said, my mother has never seen her mother before. Nobody has ever talked about mm. her. This is painful. Mm-hmm. You know, now we definitely had people come in and rally around to support her, but it ain't nothing like your own mama. It is nothing right? like your mama. Yeah. And so he didn't say mm. anything. He got up and out of nowhere, came back with this photo Mm. in 1993. My mom was born in the 40s. She'd never seen this photo before. My mom had never seen her mother's own image before. So I had this image Mm. of my grandmother who my cousin is named after her, Mm. right? Virginia, Virginia Louise Bailey. And so, but that was really the extent of it. So I was so excited to give this picture to my mother. And we were all emotional. I'm emotional Mm -hmm. now thinking about it. So we were all emotional, but it was the first time she was able to, and she might've been in her fifties or Mm sixties then, and she got to see her mother's face, right? So, yeah, girl. (laughs) So this is the damage that it does when we're not taken care of. So we're not taken care of. So we need to take care of ourselves. There are people who who are here to help us Mm -hmm. take care of ourselves. So she had two other children. She had my mother and then she had my uncle George. And so those two were the the casualties, Mm -hmm. not to mention her brothers and sisters who lost their baby and not to mention my grandmother, Grace, who lost her baby girl, Mm -hmm. who did take care of my mom for a little while but she was already old right so in 2005 mm. so she lit she was in an unmarked grave from 1943 until 2005 because me and my mm, sister mm, got mm. together and we decided to buy my mom a headstone for her mother's grave mm. so we can mark her so we can say her name 
so that yeah, she sure. exists. She wasn't just no dust on the ground, mm-hmm. like a, a grass plot, right? Mm-hmm. She's buried at Holy Trinity Church on the eastern shore of Virginia off of Boston Road in Painter, Virginia. That's where she's buried along with the other Bailey family members. So we bought her a plot, but we had to, uh, not a plot, a headstone, but we had to get the birth, the death certificate mm-hmm. to be able to get the people to, to create it. And so we did. And then we gave it to my mom for Mother's Day. Aww. And it was so like, she Ugh. she she almost kind of didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to do. We, we just knew that we needed it mm-hmm. and she needed mm-hmm. that. So now she has her mom's picture all over the house. I have her. So I took my grandma off of my altar this morning. Mm-hmm. And so gotcha. I talked to her all the time. I'm like, hey, grandmama, you know, grandma Virginia, I talked to all my ancestors. Mm-hmm. So I brought her so that, you know, we remember her. So we also know that this causes a ripple effect. And so I'm trying to disrupt that. Mm-hmm. And I know you are too. So we're talking about the 200, you know, they're talking. I'm glad that you brought this up because yes. that whole 243% that represents not just individual women, right? But like you're saying, this ripple effect. So if they have other children, right. they're, if they're partners, their partners, their families, their work, yeah. you know, these are people um, that are being removed as community resources. Right. You know, yes. um, so this is a huge, again, I'm like, this is everyone's problem. Yeah. Right? It is. Um, and one of the things that struck me, the, I don't, there were a couple different articles written about um, the sister that you were just talking about. It was yes. an NPR one and it was another one. Yes. Um, but one of the titles that bothered me was There's Nothing That Can Save Black Women. Yes, I saw that one. And I was like, lies. Yes. Black women can save black women. Yes. <laughs> and have been, right? And have been. And have been. So um, I think that, it, that it's important because what I'm seeing now with a lot of younger sisters is they're coming in from a very fear-based place okay. around birth. Like, well, they're saying, uh, you know, I'm probably going to die or what if I lose my baby and all of this anxiety. So all of that on top of the additional stress right. that you already have just right. being a black person here in America right. in the well era documented. of Trump. Right. Um, <laughs> just so, being in America, it's always been happening. Trump Trump is just the next iteration he, of the well, foolishness. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I don't know that that is the best... Um, way to approach it. Exactly. Right. Fear. Because I don't want... Right. I don't want um, black people to go into the birth process fear, Fearful. you know, and fear of death. Yeah. Um, I, because birth is a, is about expansion, right? So expansion of your personal self, expansion of family, um, expansion of community, and fear is very constrictive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, on top of, um, you know, like I said, existing in this. Uh, whole milieu of stress, continual stress, will also have adverse effects on you and absolutely. your baby. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the success stories that you have. I know my sister has this one um, baby that she birthed that the mom and the baby, they come and do family stuff with us sometimes. Mm-hmm. So tell us about your experience and how you've seen the good that it does for the community. So I, I think in terms of... Um, doula work 
um, one of the things that I have seen it help is kind of going back to that empowerment piece mm-hmm. um, because sometimes it's very easy for the medical establishment to make you doubt yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but when there's someone there like, no, girl, you got this. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, uh, I've seen this happen before. We can handle it. Let's work on X, Y, Z. Right. You know, or um, let me teach you a few easy recipes. Right. right? Here's right. some simple nutritional meals you can make. Okay. Um, or maybe here's a, a meal or something I brought for you. Okay. Um, because, you know, when you're looking at the way pregnant people are treated now mm-hmm. versus kind of historically pregnant people were revered. revered like right. you made offerings to pregnant women. Right. I do remember you being know? pregnant and people would go, oh, she's so cute. That's what they would say uh-huh. about me. Okay. Um, and, and now, you know, in sort of this uh, go, go, go consumer culture um, that we have, right. that's not present. Um, and I think just that very simple act of nourishing and nurturing um, an expected mother, it doesn't even have to be pro- professional care. Right. It is, I know my girlfriend is having a rough pregnancy. Let me see if I can grab her kids for a couple hours yeah. this weekend. You know, Girl, and I feeling okay lasagna. to do it. Because yeah. I feel like we have the superwoman complex. We Many do. of us do. So mm-hmm. I didn't do that. I never reached out to help from any of my friends. And I think that had I, they may have come. I'm pretty sure many of them would have come. But I think that they were just so excited for me, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, then Sid Sid came and then she had a whole rack of new aunties. But I never really let on that I was drowning, mm-hmm. you know, trying mm-hmm. to learn how to take care of a baby. And, and we wear the mask. And, and, and <laughs> dealing with the changes in my body and the the new ways that my body looked and felt because I had tears and you mm-hmm. know all types of stuff. So I think that to give ourselves permission to allow our community to come, we have to be open to receiving that kind of support. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you all do that. So I'm trying to picture in my head, a woman's having a baby, is she at her home or is she at the hospital or both when a doula is present? So a doula does both. So. Um Typically, we try to come out to the home um, when Mm. a woman first starts the birthing process um, to try to support her at home as long as possible Mm -hmm. Um, because women just tend to to labor easier when they're home in a comfortable Mm. environment Mm -hmm. with people who love them. Um, So we usually do that, you know, if they're they're having a home birth, then we stay in the home. and the midwife usually comes at a later date. So, so we usually a midwife come out earlier. and a doula are separate. They're two different things. Okay, just give us a f- little bit about so, both. We have about seven, five minutes left. Oh, we got five minutes so left. So I can make it simple. Doulas, we are not medically trained. So okay. we don't do any medical procedures. We don't actually physically deliver a baby. Okay. Unless it's a oops. <laughs> We're right. not making it to the hospital in time. Okay. Um, midwives are trained so they um they are ones who can legally catch okay um catch the baby catch who the can baby. perform okay. tests and diagnostics okay um and things like that wow okay so that that makes sense i've been seeing a lot on instagram because now i follow doulas and you know whatever mm-hmm. i've been seeing a lot of um births in tubs Yes. Have you ever done any of those? Yes. Supported any of those? Okay. Definitely. My, my last birth was in a tub. Wow. <laughs> yours. Yours My personally. own person. Yeah, with my youngest son. Oh, wow. I had him at home in a tub. So, like, what is the room. point of that? Like, how does that help 
the birthing process? Um, so water actually helps you to relax okay. and it helps um, mitigate some of the sensation of the surges. Oh. So it's not as intense. Okay. Um, and did you find that to be true? Yes. <laughs> okay. No, definitely. Okay. Um, I, I really enjoyed the tub with my, <laughs> with my last birth. Right. Um, and uh, so a lot of women prefer, prefer it for that reason. Okay. And do you all... Are people who have babies at home, are those the ones who don't get like a, a epidural or whatever? Like, is it that because I feel like there might be a little bit of stigma if you get an epidural. Yeah. So doulas attend. I mean, it depends uh, okay. on the individual. But in general, doulas attend all births. Right. right? Okay. So I really view my role as making sure that you are educated before you make your own personal choice. Okay. I can't tell you what's best for your body. Right, okay. Um, and in the situation of like an epidural, I've seen it go really bad, but I've also seen it work yeah, for it some worked women. For me. So that's what I was gonna say, because I had the hyperemesis the entire time until they pulled her out. But before they, you know, like a few minutes before they pulled her out, I was noticing, so I watched the baby story the whole time, right? Oh, uh -huh. And I noticed that something was going on with the monitors that wasn't right, because I seen it happen mm -hmm. on the story. Mm -hmm. So I ring for the nurse she comes in with a half a glove on eating crackers oh and I said oh, well no. I saw oh. this happening and I can't even remember what it was I said I think we need to fix this she was like oh yeah you're right I advocated for myself and then I also told her stick me once because if you stick me twice we're gonna fight <laughs> So this poor little lady was all sweaty. She was sweating. I saw her dripping sweat trying to make sure. But I was like, hit me here. Because I've, I've been a rock star this whole 10 months with this baby. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to feel no kind of way about getting this here epidural. Because at the very least, I need some kind of pleasure in this situation, right? <laughs> right. I deserve it, right? <laughs> so I had it. And I pretty much watched TV. Well, they had the mirror there. But I was like, eh. I watched TV while this was happening because I just was so traumatized from the whole thing. Mm. So when she came out, she came out and, you know, the rest is history. But being able to be your advocate, knowing that you have choices because we have two minutes left, knowing mm. that we have choices, you don't have to go the traditional route. You can get somebody to support you. There are women here who are national, right? Mm hmm international, you know, all over the world who've been doing this forever. But in this modern time, there are women who are ready and willing to support you to have the best birth possible. And if you're looking nationally, there are two really good uh, resources specifically for black doulas. Okay. Um, and it's the like National Black Doula Association. Okay. And then um, SISTA, S-I-S-T-A, Midwife. Okay. okay. Um, she has a directory of black doulas nationwide. Okay, so how can we find you? What's all your socials? Uh, for here so, in the Washington, D.C. area. Yes. Um, I'm Peaceful Earth, Graceful Birth um, on Facebook and IG. And I think I'm P-E-G Birth um, on Twitter. How'd you come up with that name? That's pretty cool. Um, because I honestly believe that you can change the earth when you change birth. Agreed. <laughs> okay. I mean, I feel like that's the best way to end this. Thank you so much, Manira. Thank you for inviting yes, me. Yes, thank you. And for all my cousins who I tagged on this, please say our, our, our auntie and my grandmother's name. Her name is Virginia Louise Bailey. Virginia and Louise Bailey. I we honor you. her today. So mm -hmm. thank you. And I will see you next time in the sanctuary.
Thank you for listening to The Sanctuary. Please follow us at Awaken and Heal on Instagram and on the web at goddess-awaken.com to follow the revolution.